From Adult Serial, I'm Matt Carlson, and this is Reconsider Strangers, the show where I talk with complete strangers to discover who they are, how they grew up, and learn from their stories, and maybe gain a friend in the process. There is no better strategy to learn who someone is than to talk with them. My name is Travis Parkin. Your age? Uh, I'll be 70 this July. <laughs> You're not. I am. <laughs> you said I'd be surprised. No way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. That. So you may not believe. Hopefully, you think I look younger. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'm just thinking, like, I don't know if we can trust you now because you don't don't look 70. Yes, Travis is a stranger. Yeah, we met in his house for dinner to chat. I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for getting to know new people. My friend and co producer of this episode, he told me that I had to meet Travis and wouldn't tell me anything more about him. Because that would break the first rule of the show. Everyone I interview must be a complete and total stranger. This is a perfect first episode of the show, as Travis was massively hospitable, and his personality and kindness, you wouldn't think by hearing how he grew up, would be a trait that he would embrace, but his story just proves that your past doesn't have to become your future. And my first question is like, what should the world know about you, or what would you love the world to know about you? Sometimes I think about um, how I might be eulogized at my memorial service or funeral. And and what would I actually want to hear people say about me when they like look down at me in my coffin? You know, was he uh, an inspiration? Was he uh, a a good dad, et cetera? And and I think uh, that when people look down at me in my coffin, I'd like to hear them say, look, he's moving. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> no, all seriousness aside, uh, Matt, I, uh, I, I, I like people to know that I'm, um, I'm smart, I'm quick-witted, I'm funny, I'm kind-hearted, uh, I'm uh, uh, willing to grow, I'm uh, cr- highly creative, uh, curious. Yeah, just, just for starters. Well, so some, of the, some things st- stood out to me. Kind-hearted. Um, kind hearted probably is the first one that stood out to me the most. Like, why? Why would you? Why would? Why would that matter to you? Mm, golden rule, you know. It still applies. You know, do unto others. I um, I know how I like to be treated, yeah. and I like to be treated with kindness. And so I just sort of export that, you know. And I say, gee, maybe everybody else likes that too. When it comes to kindness, I could tell immediately that Travis practices what he preaches. Travis gave me a tour of his beautiful home. He lives in a house that's built by Bart Prince, who's an Albuquerque architect and is best known for his highly organic style of architecture. Throughout Travis's space, he had art everywhere, African, modern art, and it was just stunning. After the tour, we sat down to talk about his life, and my first question was where he grew up. I was born uh, in Upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains, about halfway between uh, Albany and the Canadian border, a little uh, glove-making town, Johnstown, New York, hmm. uh, glove-making factories. Uh, pretty much, I don't know, 80% of the population was somehow or other involved in the glove-making trade. And um, my grandparents uh, emigrated to Ellis Island from uh, in the like early 30s, I think from uh, Naples, Italy, and they were leather workers, and they stayed in Brooklyn for a while, but they heard there was 
le uh, leather work, uh, making gloves up in uh, Johnstown in Gloversville. So they emigrated up there and started a family, uh, 11 kids, and my dad was the, was the youngest. And uh, so I was born there. I also, my parents split up when I was about five years old. Uh, and um, I lived with uh, my mom for, till I was about nine. It was pretty uh, uh, tumultuous. Uh, it was a, a violent uh, home. Uh, my mother was a hitter and uh, not, not just me, my sisters uh, as well. And um, uh, today we joke about it and we, 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 I was showing my sister a little picture of our house that I had found and I photoshopped over the, the, the doorway, uh, tempura house, and then underneath it said, the home of lightly battered children. Uh, anyway, but you, ha you know, you have, to, you have to laugh to survive uh, in, the, in this world. So, um, so anyway, uh, I, I grew up there, um, moved to, uh, uh, my mom and I weren't getting along. I uh, uh, kept running away from home and uh, because of the violence. Travis ran away a lot and he landed in a state school for boys. After a few months, his dad took him home to live with him and his new family. Unfortunately, Travis never felt loved at his dad's house. And even though Travis was a straight-A student and very athletic, he never felt wanted. Travis once again ran away at 13 years old and was on the street until the police caught him. But this time, he landed in jail. His dad got him out of jail and seriously wasn't happy about the situation and didn't talk to him during the four-hour drive home. Travis ended up living with his mom again, who had remarried, but this time he felt loved. His stepdad was a construction worker and had a great sense of humor, and the best thing about living at his mom's house was he finally had a father figure. His mom, on the other hand, she hadn't really changed. So at this time, uh, there was the civil rights struggle was going on. I went to a high school that was probably uh, about 60% African American. My high school principal was a a boxing coach, and he boxed uh, Muhammad Ali, who was Cassius Clay at the time, for the Tokyo Olympics. I'm thinking that was in 64, maybe it might have been 1960. But, uh, but anyway, so uh, in about 1965 or so, we're watching all these images on TV of, uh, you know, African-American people getting fire-hosed in Little Rock and, you know, uh, uh, Selma. And, uh, and so... Um, and, you know, I have some pretty uh, progressive uh, teachers uh, who have kind of taken me under their wing and uh, actually um, let me stay at their house sometimes on weekends, had taken me to socialist party meetings uh, in New York City on weekends. And, of course, they would have lost their job if, you know, anyone yeah. found out. But uh, so, you know, they say as the, tr as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. Well... I got a good education in, in uh, progressive politics uh, starting at an early age. Sure. And so, uh, and, um, and gravitated more toward the black kids in my school because they were cooler, you know, they they had better parties and they already had marijuana, you know, and white kids didn't. And um, what do you, what do you think today when you look at like today's culture versus what you grew up in? Like, what's that, what's the comparison that you see? you see today? Um, I see more fear, I think, you know, where people don't like take the time to get out and, uh, and, and, and meet people who are different from them, you know, especially if they 
work from home, and a lot of people do in this day and age. You know, at least when you worked, you know, in a in a in a factory or in an office with thirty or forty other people, you were kind of forced to eat lunch with people who were different from you. You right. know, and 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 sometimes you discovered, oh, you know, he's a pretty cool guy. You know, I should have him over the house sometime or whatever. And that you know doesn't happen, I don't think, as much now for probably a, a lot of different reasons, but. Um, but uh, for me, um, it was a, it was a reality. These were my friends, and I got invited over to their house, you know, mm-hmm. after school and stuff. But uh, my mother didn't allow me to bring the black kids home into our house, though. That was not that was not permitted. And um, but it was her house, so you know, I kind of uh, went pretty much went along with that rule. That'd be so, hard, though. It was kind of hard. Yeah. And and one time I I did bring this guy uh, uh, Willie um, over to. Uh, um, the house and I thought he'd be gone by the time my mom got home, but he was still there. And, yep. uh, you know, I, re- after he, after he left, you know, and my mother said, you know, you, you ever bring this house again. And she says, and I will beat the living hell out of you, you know? And, it, you know, she made it real clear. And both of my parents were, um, you know, very prejudiced, like most of their friends and most of the people in the neighborhood, although most of the white people were moving out of this neighborhood uh, mm-hmm. uh, to the suburbs, but we didn't really have the money. We were on welfare. So we kind of stayed and watched yeah. the neighborhood get blacker and blacker, which was cool with me, you know, and I got to uh, hang out with uh, some great kids and uh, became a pretty good basketball player and a, a great dancer. And to yeah. this day, I, I I love to, you know, jitterbug and swing yeah. and stuff, you know. So um, there was one day that was kind of pivotal in my life. And um, I was, uh, one of my Saturday chores was vacuuming the um, the carpeted staircase uh, in our house. We lived up on the second floor and there was a first floor and in a basement apartment. And the first floor apartment was for rent. And there was a for rent sign in the window. And it was a Saturday and I was on my knees vacuuming the carpeted steps it was one of those vacuums that um, uh, I don't even know if they still have them, but it's like a big canister on the floor, and then it has these interlocking steel tubes, you know, like the Electrolux. Yeah, like an yeah, yeah. it was an Electrolux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so um, because I was up close and on my knees, I pulled this the metal tubes apart, and they were at the base of the stairs. And uh, I'm on my knees vacuuming, and then I hear a knock at the door downstairs, and I went and opened it, and it was an African American couple. And the uh, uh, woman uh, was a teacher at my school, and uh, Mrs. Hendricks, and her husband was in a fireman's uniform, and they were there to inquire about renting the flat. And I immediately, a couple of things went through my mind. Uh, Number one, I assessed them almost like I were the landlord, and I said to myself, these guys would be good tenants, good neighbors, you know, she's a teacher at my school. He's a fireman, you know, they're going to pay the rent They're, you know, uh, so, um, anyway, uh, you know, they're professionals. And so, um, I also at that same moment, full on knew that my mother would not be happy with my letting them in to see the place. Mm -hmm. It was, I knew that it was my job to give them some bullshit answer about how the place wasn't available or whatever, you know. But because of everything I was getting in the classroom at this time, learning about civil rights and learning that, you know, prejudice is a bad thing. Yeah. And uh, 
Uh, and, you know, and, and it's kind of getting ingrained where I'm saying, well, I don't want to be that way. Well, I struggle, saying, be yeah, yeah I wouldn't like if somebody yeah. did that to me, you know. So um, so I said, well, here goes, you know, <laughs> and I let them in, you know, and I, you know, I kind of knew that was going to hit the fan, but um, I didn't know how it was going to all come down. But there was part of me that was kind of curious to see, how, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so um, uh, I let them in and I said, you know, here you go. And, and uh, I said, I'll go upstairs and get my mom. And I remember that my mother was uh, baking or something in the kitchen. And I went upstairs and, and I told her and she was real excited because no one had come to look at the place in over a week, you know. And she took off her apron and she quickly ran into the bathroom and kind of fluffed up her hair a little bit and sprayed a little Aquanet on there. And then came, you know, kind of, uh, she was overweight, you know, kind of came waddling down the stairs and, uh, and I just kind of waited, you know, and yeah. she walked into the apartment and I, and I could hear her say, uh, Oh, I'm so sorry. My son was doing some grocery shopping for me earlier and isn't aware of the fact that I just rented it about an hour ago. I forgot to tell him, but why don't you give me your number? And if the other thing falls through, we'll be sure to call you. And as they left, I remember making eye contact with the husband, the fireman, you know. And there was this moment of, um, shared moment of, uh, I, know, I know what this is about, you know. And, and I was, and I tried to emote, uh, sorry, dude, you know, as best I could with my eyes. You know, yeah. I think I shrugged my shoulders a little bit or something. And then I got back down on my knees and I started um, vacuuming the stairs again. Well, my mother locked up the apartment and because I had the vacuum running, I couldn't hear her, but she picked up one of these uh, steel tubes and came up behind me uh, on the stairs and just started beating me mercilessly oh, across oh the back and the back of my neck and uh, calling me a ear lover and, um, you know, uh, and saying, you think you're a smart guy, don't you? You know, we're not going to rent to those people. You shouldn't have even let them in. You know, you you, should, you think you're real cute, don't you? You know, as she's wailing away at me, you know. And, um, and that was, um, I, I share this particular story because that was kind of an epiphany for me in that um, I was fully conscious of the fact that this wasn't on me. This was on her, you know. This was her, you know, not mine. Uh, if she wants to tell those people they're not welcome, let her do it. I'm not going to you know, do her evil deeds for yeah. her anymore, you know? Yeah. And so it was kind of the first day I stood up to my mother, really, uh, defied her. And I was like star halfback on the football team and stuff. So I was, you and know, you were I was like 14 years old, 15, I was 15, yeah. but I was, and I was working out with weights yeah. and stuff. And I was, uh, you know, there was, my mother would have been no match for me physically, sure. you know, but I had never raised a hand to my mother before this day. And as she, you know, wailing at me with this pipe and, you know, clubbed me on the head a couple of times. Finally, I just put my hand up and intercepted a blow and caught her on the wrist. And I, I, I twisted her arm behind her back until she dropped the pipe, you know. And then I told her that um, I couldn't live in this house anymore and, um, um, and told her that she was a bigot, you know. And um, then she told me to get the F out and um, I threw some clothes and a toothbrush and a few things in a cardboard box and as i went down the stairs with my belongings in a box not knowing where i was gonna stay that night you know you know and she's like and don't come back and um and then the, i remember the last thing she said to me uh, as i went out the door was um if you love the 
you're so much, why don't you go down to the housing projects and live with them? And so um, that's what I did. Travis, once again, ran away from home. But this time it really wasn't running. It was escaping. Travis needed to find a place to stay as it was cold at night and he needed to find shelter. Travis played basketball in the projects pretty often and he went there to find somewhere to sleep. He settled himself into the stairwell of one of the buildings and was found by his friend Henry. Now Henry was a friend that he had met at the pool hall where he used to play during lunch. After Travis told Henry what had happened, Henry devised a plan to let Travis stay in his house. Remember, this was when the civil rights movement was in full swing, and Henry wasn't white. Um, he said, well, you know, my brother Larry just got drafted to go to Vietnam, so I got an extra bed in my um, room. And um, if you wait about another half an hour, my, uh, my mom will be asleep. She goes to bed like every night at 10. You know, He says, I'll come and get you. I'll sneak you in. You can stay in Larry's bed. And he says, but you got to get up in the morning and be out by <laughs> 645 or whatever, yeah. you know. And so this worked for uh, probably close to a week. He would sneak me in every night and I was sleeping there, you know. And, um, and then uh, one morning uh, uh, she just came in the room uh, and something, she found something. And anyway, she busted us and, uh, and, and she sat us down in the kitchen and she's like, Henry, who is this white boy, you know, sleeping in Larry's bed, you know, and then he explained and everything. And so she said, so you don't have any place to go, uh, young man? And I said, no. And so she went down to the, like, uh, I don't know, uh, I, I don't know, some government agency sure. to report that I was there and, uh, and basically, uh, got some kind of permission for them to take me in as, you know, I mean, not like official foster parents, but yeah. essentially, you know, de facto foster parents. Travis was kicked out of his home by a racist mother to be taken in by a black family and treated like he was their family. I couldn't help but think that this must have been surreal to live in a house where he was finally wanted instead of being a burden. Yeah. How, what, what did that feel like? Um, I liked it. You know, yeah. I thought it was pretty cool, you know, and um, the only there, you know, there were some caveats. Uh, one was that they they were what what white people call holy rollers. They were uh, Pentecostal, you know, first church of God in Christ was the church they went to. And uh, um, and Anna Mae said, if you're going to live under our roof, you're going to go to church with the whole family on Sundays. And so, you know, I had to go uh, to church and. I loved it, you know, the music, um, the, uh, the girls, you know, the, um, afterwards, the ladies of the church would all cook, you know, like, uh, fried chicken and collard greens and sweet potato pie and stuff, you know, down in, in the basement of the church. Was this in New York? City? Albany. This was Albany. in Albany. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for the time that I lived with them, which was close to a year, you know, I went, I attended this church. I sang in the, I wound up singing in the choir. I wound up teaching Sunday school uh, for about six months, if yeah. you can believe that, you know. Um, and, um, and I think, I, you know, I took a lot of things uh, uh, away from, oh, the other thing is we weren't allowed to, um, to listen to secular music in the house. It had to be like James Cleveland and the Angelic Choir or, you know, whoever, you know, Sister yeah. Rosetta Tharp, you know, doing, <laughs> you know, uh, when she was doing gospel, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, 
So oh, Mahalia Jackson was big. Uh, so anyway, but of course, Henry and I, we had like James Brown and Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin uh, albums, and yeah. we would hide them between the box spring and the mattress so that because if Anna Mae yeah. found them, she considered it the devil's music and she would have burned it. You know? I grew up exactly the same Oh, way. is that right? Oh. Exactly. <laughs> okay. We would record the radio. Oh. On tapes that were approved. Yeah. So you'd never know. Just remove it. You could basically put the scotch tape over the, the two tape heads. Right. You could record over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You pull the tape off so you'd never know. Yes, right. Yeah. 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 And it yeah. would, yeah. And so it would look like a, a, a carpenter's uh, right. cassette or something. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I took some things away from that experience. I got uh, uh, really ingrained in uh, music. And I, to this day, I. You know, I love jazz and R&B and, uh, you know, other kinds of music as well. And I still love gospel. Yeah. Um, uh, other thing is, um, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to explain. But when I, when I run into, I mean, there aren't a lot of black folks in New Mexico. I think it's 2% of the population or whatever. Um, but when I run into black folks, uh, like at a party or something like that, I just have this, like, urge to go over and just say hi and introduce myself almost yeah. as, you know, because of the shared culture thing. Yeah. But, you know, I don't do that because they would think I'm, I'm weird, but <laughs> yeah, you know, but it, but it, it kind of makes my heart feel good yeah. when I see black faces, you know, um, out, out socially and everything. And so I'm not a, I'm not afraid of black people like uh, so many white people are, you yeah. know, I mean, now don't get me wrong. There are certain types of individuals regardless of what color they are coming up the street and you can tell they're menacing and yeah, you know, I, I hey, you're walking down the street with a machete. Yeah. Doesn't matter what color you are. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Travis lived with Henry and his family for a year until he got a job and could afford his own place. Travis explained that he graduated high school with honors and entered into college. At this point, I had a burning question that I could not help but ask. How in the world did Travis always look ahead and make the most of his life instead of blaming the past? So uh, some things stand out to me, mm -hmm. and, and I think so often today people will blame their past on their current situation. Oh, like, yeah. That happened. And so here's this is why I am where I'm at. Yes. And they don't take personal responsibility yes. for their current actions. Isn't it the truth? So yeah. why... Well, I hear your story, and that is not a common thread amongst any of like what right. you've gone through. Why? Right. Oh, that's 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 real easy. Um, first of all, I want to say that if you're 29 years old, if your Saturn has returned, as the New Agers like to say, <laughs> if you're 29 years old and you're still br blaming your problems on mommy and daddy, you just need to get over it. You know, whatever, whether it takes therapy or some reading or just, you know, somehow finding yourself in nature. But because before you know it, you're going to be 39, then you're going to be 49. And then pretty soon you're saying, well, it's too late to really make anything yep. of my life now. And so I, I, I give people that, you know, by the time you're 29, you need to get over that stuff and get on with your life and stop blaming mom and dad. I wasn't aware of it until you know, I was on in my years till, you know, fairly recently. Um, but my whole life of being an overachiever has been to prove her wrong. It was, that's why I worked so hard in school 
to get good grades and she never looked at my report card. I signed my own report card and brought it into school, you know, didn't, um, you know, she didn't attend my graduation. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't, how does it, I mean, we, we have different stories, but similar outcomes. Uh huh. Yeah. How does, how do you feel today about that? Um, this may shock you, but I feel grateful. I feel grateful that she was the catalyst, that she provided me with that inspiration wow. to prove her wrong and to, and to be somebody. So how, how, is, the, how is that your, not even how, but why is that your realization? Like, why is that your heart's like, like feeling towards that situation? Well, for, for one thing, um, you know, I was blessed with intelligence. I hate to use that word blessed. Everybody uses that damn word, you know, but uh, I was hashtag. fortunate enough. Yeah, hashtag blessed. I was fortunate enough to, to be born with a, a good mind, you know, yeah. and so um, I read, you know, and, I, and I've read books about issues that I'm involved with in my life, you know, psychological or whatever. And, and you know, and I just figured out that, you know, at a reasonably young age that this was her stuff. She was probably abused by her dad and everything, you know. And, um, uh, but I did, um, I, you know, when I was younger, when I was a teen or right into my 20s, probably, I despised this woman, you know, I just despised her. Mm-hmm. And I got over that because um, I read, Jeez, uh, I don't remember if it was Plato or it was one of some Greek philosopher was talking about anger, you know, and he said, you know, holding anger in your heart for another person is like taking a little teaspoon, tiny little teaspoon of poison every day and then waiting for that other person to get to sick. Die. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And, uh, and so I love myself, you know, and I said, um, <laughs> you know, I don't want to grow up hating women. I don't want to grow up hitting my kids. Uh, I want to, uh, uh, I want that cycle to stop always. Uh, my parents never said, I love you. And I say, I love you at the end of every conversation with my kids, you know, every email, you know, Me too. absolutely. Cause it might be the last time you see them, you know, I say so. it more in one day than I heard in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I, it's not to prove it's not, it's just like this genuine, I just need you to know. Yeah. And I ask them questions. How, how, how do you know that I love you? And at first it started with why? Because you're my dad. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, do you know what love is? No. Like, okay. Mm-hmm, right. And then in time, they can actually, you do this for me and the things that I enjoy doing, you spend mm-hmm. time with me and you, and yeah. it, it, it means so much. Yeah. Now the word actually has a meaning and they understand yeah. the meaning and I get to see the things that they appreciate about how I love them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll do those again and I'll do it more often because mm-hmm. I know now how you yeah. feel loved. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. And I love that. And I think a, a, maybe a tougher question to answer is yeah. uh, like, you know, if you have a significant other or I like to call mine significant mother, you know, but, uh, no. Uh, and, and the other thing I want to add is that, um, when men have grown up in a household, like I have, um, they often become pretty weird dudes, you know, like they say like 80% of the male serial killers were had overbearing mothers, you know, like, and, um, and um, men who abuse women were often abused by their mother and they're kind of trying to get even and stuff. And I've never hit a woman in my life. I, I, I always, um, I love women 
and I love my daughter. And I, um, um, there, there is a stat. Mm -hmm. So typically, and you're right, like the people that have like lost their minds and lost sight of like that humanity is, um, worth something. Yeah. they they take advantage of that situation. A majority don't turn to, to replicating what they saw because if that was the case, Mm -hmm. we'd all be killed. Like the math would outdo yeah. us, and we'd all yes. we'd all kill each other. Yes, yes. And so, to just the fact that we're sitting here mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> is, is is a bit of proof. But there's so many people, and, and we're literally we're literally growing faster than we're diminishing. Yeah, and so that's proof that that we don't have to like replicate and continue the cycle. That's right. But lots of us have those things that have happened to us. The scars remain, and sure. nobody has any clue how that happened to us until we dig in and understand. Yeah. As opposed to just point fingers. Yeah. Because of what we look like or what we said or what our bumper sticker is or what it's like, man, get over it. Yeah. Well, yeah. how about we engage? In the words of William Shakespeare, the past is prologue. While true, it doesn't have to define our future. Our lives are full of ups and downs, success and failure, being the victim and the victimizer. Though we all have different circumstances that we were subjected to or performed, today is a new day, and we always have opportunities to do what's right. After a semester of college, Travis quit, and he applied for a job to work as a flight purser for TWA. He didn't know what the job really was, but he applied anyways. While I was sitting there in my underwear with this guy sitting next to me, we are waiting to go in for our physical, um, I asked him, I said, you know, the hell is this job anyway you know and he says oh he says well you you'll be on the airplane flying to europe every week and you'll be kind of like the stewardess supervisor you know and i'm like oh awesome you know so uh so anyway i i wound up getting hired and then uh we had this uh class uh that began a few weeks later in uh in uh, Overland Park, Kansas at the Breach Training Academy which was where they trained all the stewardesses but we were 20 males there in this environment of several hundred stewardesses who were in training to become mm-hmm. flight attendants. You know, they called them uh, hostesses uh, in, in that day at TWA. And so um, uh, went through this like six-week training program where I learned all about how to... I mean, I came from this uh, family where uh, the only fresh vegetables we ever had were hothouse tomatoes, four in the little box, and iceberg lettuce. Everything else was canned. I mean, we weren't even into frozen yet. You know, our, we had a dinky little freezer that was yeah. just big enough to hold our ice cream, you know. And so uh, it was all about canned fruit, and can, other than maybe bananas or apples. Uh, never had a mango, never had yogurt, never had an avocado. Those things were just n- not even part of my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have known what an avocado was when I was 16 years old, if you set it on the table in front of me. I didn't have one until I was like 26, 27. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I find myself in this environment where I'm learning how to slice Chateaubriand and uh, how to make cocktails, how to properly set a table, how to open and present a bottle of wine. What's the difference between a a Bordeaux and a Burgundy or a Pinot and a Cabernet, you know, and uh, all this stuff, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just getting this like crash course education in fine dining, you yeah. know, 
Um, and so um, then um, uh, I got uh, stationed in New York and I had to f uh, find a place to live uh, in, you know, in the New York metropolitan area and be prepared to start taking my flights to Europe. And, uh, you know, I, I did all that. I shared an apartment with a bunch of people at first and then eventually moved up into the Catskills and drove into yeah. town once a week. But um, but uh, I, I've just found myself on mostly on the junior people flew on weekends because the senior people wanted to be home with their families. Mm -hmm. So so I flew to Europe pretty much every Friday night for like several years, you know, and all of a sudden I found myself in the capitals of Europe, you know, in Paris and Madrid, Rome, Milan, London. Uh, and, uh, and I would, I was just discovering LSD at that time and would bring little tabs of acid with me to just kind of spice things up on my layover, you know, to just make it even more wonderful, you know, yeah. uh, more full of wonder than it already was. But I can remember on several occasions, you know, dropping a, doing a tab of window pane and going to the Louvre uh, or El Prado, you know, um, all these Are you sure things. you were actually there? I'm pretty <laughs> sure I was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think I carved my name on the front steps here. But, um, but anyway, um, and then eating all these foods and going to these restaurants and getting a perspective of America from the other side of the lake, you know, and what they thought about us and and how they behaved and, and comparing stuff. You know, yeah. I'm just a bright kid, you know, and I was comparing all this stuff and I'm going, you know, oh, you know, this is, they live a little bit different and some of the things they do, they do better, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, I do recall on my very first trip to Paris that uh, uh, they, uh, they didn't have a big hotel in Paris that they could put us all up in. So they had four or five little boutique hotels. I remember they had the Balzac and the Castiglion and, uh, you know, uh, s several others. Uh, and they, uh, and you got to choose which one of these little boutique hotels you wanted to stay at. And uh, they had the little French elevators, you know, and nice down quilts and French doors that opened with a little balcony. And I can remember the first time I went to Paris and I checked, you know, went up to my room and, uh, I uh, threw open these French doors to this balcony. There was the freaking Eiffel Tower, like at the <laughs> end of the block, dude. I mean, it, I, you know, I'm just like four or five blocks down the street, you know, and I'm like, you know, I, I growing up in Johnstown and Albany, New York, I mean, I, I mean, I knew what the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower was, right. but I never dreamed in my wildest imagination that I would ever actually see it, you yeah. know, and here I was. So, I knew I was coming back the next Friday, um, you know, because it was my weekly run, and this time I was going to be prepared. So I brought my little. We didn't have the cassette players were just kind of starting to come out, but I didn't quite have one yet. I had a portable record player with batteries, you know, like six D cells or whatever. And I went to the record shop in Manhattan and I bought an album of French accordion music, and then I bought a um, a striped boat neck shirt with three quarter sleeves and some black bell bottoms and a beret. And I came to Paris on my next trip and I changed into my quote unquote French outfit <laughs> and uh, walked down the street. I think people must have been laughing at me behind my back hysterically, <laughs> you know, and I walked down the street and I bought a bottle of, uh, of, uh, uh red wine and, um, and I, I think it was like 
just some cheap burgundy, you know, Louis Jadot or whatever. And I bought a baguette, some Gruyere cheese and some olives and stuff. And Oh, and I brought with me a checkered tablecloth because I knew that on this balcony they had a little wrought iron table. And I can remember I had my outfit on. I flipped open the uh, checkered tablecloth, smoothed it out on the table, opened the wine, sliced some bread, some cheese, put the olives out there. And then I touched the needle down on the record and it started playing French accordion music. <laughs> and I remember just sitting in a chair and putting my feet up on the table, crossed at the ankle, and having a glass of wine in, in one hand and, uh, and some cheese and baguette in the other. And I remember just uh, actually muttering to myself out loud, you're in Paris, dude, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I just felt so Parisian, you know, yeah. uh, that day, you know, I got over that, the okay, outfit so thing. You're, you're like more than a tourist. You're yeah. Like, yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like, oh, I'm I want, I'm, I'm local, you know, <laughs> exactly. I want to fit right in. <laughs> anyway. That's incredible. Uh, so, uh, how, how is it possible that you could remember to like the thread count of your suit. Like how, <laughs> how can you remember that still? I, I have a, an awesome memory. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I have a, a fairly, uh, fairly deep repertoire of, of humor and jokes. Yeah. And uh, people are always amazed. I mean, uh, whenever there's joke telling competitions, anywhere <laughs> I go, I, I win hands down, you know. And uh, I even tried to... Uh, stand-up comedy at one time, but they asked me to sit down. But my my problem was that uh, I I got up there and tried to tell jokes, and that's yeah. not what stand-up comedy is about anymore. It's about you know getting a laugh every six seconds, and uh, the the joke telling is kind of an art of the past, you know. But uh, uh, I I like doing it because I love to make people laugh, and it forges um, uh, relationships. Yeah. You know, um, when you when you uh, like read online personals that women write or when you um, talk to women, you know, th they're all about, oh, you know, I, I want a guy that can make me laugh. You know, if you don't have a sense of humor, I want a guy that can dance and that can make me laugh, you know. And I think that was part of it also was at a young age, you know, I, I knew if you could make the girls laugh, you know, you could get dates, you know. <laughs> Did it work? It, it's, it's worked. <laughs> it's, worked. <laughs> it's worked pretty well. <laughs> It worked so well, in fact. Travis told me he has had five different wives and was first married at 18. When he met a girl that picked him up, where else? Hitchhiking. And he married her three days later. Travis now has three children that he is more than proud of and loves dearly. In fact, Travis recently sold his graphic design and screen printing business and bought an art studio with his daughter. He plans to oil paint even though he's never painted anything outside of a fence because he loves to be creative and never wants to retire from doing things that bring life. That is it for this episode. We will pick up where we left off in the next show, but here is a sneak peek of what to expect from Travis Parkin. You loaded the trunk with, you know, two or 300 pounds of marijuana. The, 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 the back go down you know you right. have tail drag you can tell yeah, yeah. and then uh, people would clock your scene that was the word we used for it then which basically means both the police and pirates would know they would see two white guys in a big boat with tail drag it meant they had a load of weed in the back and let's pull them over and stick a gun to their head or put handcuffs on them or whatever you know reconsider strangers is hosted by me matt carlson this episode was produced by me and joy belleville and brought to you by Adult Serial. 
If you like Reconsider Strangers, tell a friend and maybe leave us a review. Until next time. <laughs>